Surfing. Today, it's a worldwide sensation. But who invented it? Where did it come from? And how did it ultimately end up the extreme sport that is loved so dearly today in Australia? Let's find out in today's Aussie Fact episode. Today, when you visit any beach with decently sized waves, you're more than likely to come across a surfer or two. Since time immemorial, humans have pitted themselves against the oceans. We waded, we swam, and we dove in the pursuit of food. We learnt to build boats to get into deeper water and catch bigger fish. We crossed oceans in the search of new and unknown lands. And eventually, we worked out how to harness the ocean's energy in conjunction with the Earth's gravity in order to propel ourselves atop a surfboard, perhaps for no other reason than because we could. So, who were the first surfers? While we'll never know for sure who were the first people to discover how to ride waves, the earliest group of people we know of doing just that were the Polynesians. These seafaring warrior people colonised many Pacific islands over a period of about 2,000 years. By 800 BC, they had settled in Samoa, moving to the Society Islands between the years 1025 and 1120 AD, and then onto islands like New Zealand, Rapa Nui, and Hawaii between 1190 and 1290 AD. In their continuous expansion, the Polynesians had created large vessels that harnessed the wind with two or more sails. And it's not hard to imagine they harnessed the energy of waves when arriving at shore. At some point, some imaginative Polynesian innovator realised he or she could trade the ship or even canoe for a plank of wood and ride the waves solo, maybe in their downtime, maybe to impress onlookers, who knows. What we do know is that when Europeans first saw someone surfing, the activity had already become a deeply rooted custom throughout Polynesia, maybe for hundreds or even thousands of years. The first group of Europeans came across the thriving sport of surfing more than 250 years ago when the crew of a ship named the Dolphin sailed to Tahiti. In the following decades, other European explorers shared this jaw-dropping experience of seeing men seamlessly float on water, including the famous Joseph Banks and Captain James Cook. Cook gave us the first written account of surfing, albeit posthumously, during his third and final expedition to the Pacific with his ships the HMS Discovery and Resolution in 1779. The expedition had been sent to locate a northwest passage around the American continent and ended up discovering Hawaii, where Cook was the first European to begin formal contact with the Hawaiians. In a nutshell, the locals thought Cook and his crew to be gods as they'd arrived during religious celebrations. As you'd imagine, Cook and the crew didn't want to spoil things by correcting their welcoming hosts, and they exploited the Hawaiians' goodwill for the following month. After a crewman died, exposing the Europeans as mere mortals, relations became strained. Cook and his men left, but one of their boats was damaged and they were forced to return to the shore in Kialakikua Bay, where they were met by men hurling rocks, some of whom stole a small vessel from the Discovery. 
Negotiations for the boat's return failed. Cook wanted to avoid bloodshed, but one of his men fired a shot that killed a Hawaiian chief, leading to an enraged mob of Hawaiians descending upon Cook and his crewmen in ankle-deep water as he tried to retreat and stabbing and stoning him and most of his men to death. Fortunately, Lieutenant James King survived and was made the first lieutenant of the Discovery and thus given the task of finishing the narrative portion of Cook's journals. King wrote the following about surfboard riding in Kealakikua Bay, which is the earliest written account of the sport. But a diversion the most common is upon the water, where there is a very great sea and surf breaking on the shore. The men sometimes twenty or thirty go without the swell of the surf and lay themselves flat upon an oval piece of plank about their size and breadth. They keep their legs close on top of it and their arms are used to guide the plank. They wait the time of the greatest swell that sets on shore and together push forward with their arms to keep on its top. It sends them in with a most astonishing velocity, and the great art is to guide the plank so as always to keep it in a proper direction on the top of the swell, and as it alters its direct. If the swell drives him close to the rocks before he is overtaken by its break, he is much praised. On first seeing this very dangerous diversion, I did not conceive it possible, but that some of them must be dashed to mummy against the sharp rocks. But just before they reach the shore, if they are very near, they quit their plank and dive under till the surf is broke, when the piece of plank is sent many yards by the force of the surf from the beach. The greatest number are generally overtaken by the break of the swell, the force which they avoid, diving and swimming under the water of its impulse. By such like exercises, these men may be said to be almost amphibious. The women could swim off to the ship and continue half a day in the water and afterwards return. The above diversion is only intended as an amusement, not a trial of skill, and in a gentle swell that sets on, must I conceive be very pleasant. At least they seem to feel a great pleasure in the motion which this exercise gives. Thus, the new commander of the Discovery recorded the very first account of Hawaiian surfing in the ship's logs in 1779. Surfing wasn't a mere hobby, though. In Tahitian culture, the chief of the tribe was the man who was the best surfer. In other words, the top dog had to be the top wave rider of his community, which says a lot about the cultural importance of surfing. In Hawaii, surfing also has a rich tradition, where the ancient Hawaiians considered surfing to be an integral part of their lives. In order to surf, you obviously had to have a surfboard, the construction of which was a spiritual process. Being a skilled surfer earned you more than just bragging rights too, as you also earned prestige and respect within society. Over time, upper-class Hawaiians developed their entire society around the sport of surfing. For the next hundred years or so, following Cook's death and James's first written account of surfing, the activity remained in places like Hawaii, although it began to receive more written attention. In the year 1866, nearly a hundred years later, whilst on a trip to Hawaii as a travel correspondent, famous author Mark Twain wrote the following... In one place we came upon a large company of naked natives, of both sexes and all ages, amusing themselves with the national pastime of surf bathing. 
Each heathen would paddle three or four hundred yards out to sea, taking a short board with him, then face the shore and wait for a particularly prodigious billow to come along. At the right moment, he would fling his board upon its foamy crest and himself upon the board, and here he would come whizzing by like a bombshell. It did not seem that a lightning express train could shoot along at a more hair-lifting speed. I tried surf bathing once, subsequently, but made a failure of it. I got the board placed right, and at the right moment too, but missed the connection myself. The board struck the shore in three quarters of a second without any cargo, and I struck the bottom at about the same time with a couple of barrels of water in me. None but the natives ever master the art of surf bathing thoroughly. Note, words like natives and especially heathen as descriptions of indigenous people would today be considered racist. Ultimately, it was unavoidable that such an impressive extreme sport would catch on like wildfire across the globe. A man named James Matthias Jordan Jr. was the first Westerner to take what he'd learnt from the ancient ways of the Polynesians and apply it to the waves crashing onto the shores of the east coast of the US. In 1912, he climbed onto a redwood surfboard at Virginia Beach, which from then on became a main surfing centre in the country. Word spread fast and surfing jumped across to the west coast of the US and then across the rest of the world. From this moment onwards, the sport of surfing exploded across the globe as people fell in love with the most recent way of man taming the ocean. With the public exposure came thirst for innovation as new boards were designed for different purposes and so surfing culture began to develop. Australia, California and Hawaii became the first surfing havens for those wanting to pursue the new sport and adopt the relaxed and carefree lifestyle that came along with it. It was in the 1960s when the surfing culture really began to ramp up, and this was due to the production of the first surfing movies, as well as surf music like that of the Beach Boys, which garnered attention everywhere in the world. As the surfing lifestyle spread and surf breaks at beaches began to team with board riders, competitions began to pop up and a professional surfing community quickly emerged and took hold. Surfing culture has only continued to grow up until the present and there are now heaps of surf beaches, competitions and surf shops fueled by an entire subculture revolving around the sport. So, how did surfing get to Australia? The general accepted story of how surfing got to Australia is that a Hawaiian named Duke Kahanamoku was the first person to bring surfing to Australian shores. In 1915, Duke was invited to Australia by swimming officials after his impressive 100-metre freestyle gold medal performance at the Stockholm Olympics three years prior. Whilst Duke was touring Australian beaches in order to promote swimming carnivals, he brought with him his longboard, more than twice his height, as well as his talents as a surfer, which he first showed off for the public and press alike at Freshwater Beach near Sydney in New South Wales. The Sydney Morning Herald reported, 
Kahanamoku came out with his surfboard, plunged into the water and continued to swim out until those watching from the beach wondered when he would stop. After covering nearly half a mile, Kahanamoku turned and prepared for a roller, which came along a moment after. He caught it, and as the wave carried him shorewards, he performed all kinds of acrobatic feats on the board and finally dived into the water as the roller broke. His longboard can still be seen today on display at the Freshwater Surf Life Saving Club in Sydney. This story has been retold so many times, it's now generally accepted as the first arrival of surfing to Australia. However, the truth is that historians dug up photos and news articles of a man named Tommy Walker. Now, Tommy Walker had appeared in news stories showing off his talent of riding waves into shore on his surfboard whilst doing a handstand at Namba Beach in the years 1911 or 1912, several years before Duke even set foot in Australia. When, where and how surfing got to Australia, we'll likely never know for sure. Whatever the case, by the early 1900s, surfing had arrived down under and made headlines in national newspapers. People's curiosity was now piqued at how someone could ride a wave, and surfing culture in Australia had begun. Surfboards of all shapes and sizes... Today, there's dozens of surfboard designs. The Malibu, the 2 plus 1... The Mini Tanker, the Olu, the Alea, the Tandem, the Hybrid, the Fish, the Fun Board, and the Gun, just to name a few. Board styles can be largely separated into two categories, though. Short boards and long boards, the names of which are pretty self-explanatory. Short boards tend to be shorter and more nimble rides for carving up waves, whereas long boards are longer and sturdier boards for cruising along at a slow pace. Board innovation was relatively slow in the beginning. Surfers mostly used longboards like that of Duke, which were long, thick planks of wood. It was only in the 1950s that Malibu surfboards were first brought to Australia by a team of US lifeguards. They were named Malibus after the place Malibu in California, and the Malibu was a narrower board with slightly pulled in nose and tail sections that improved manoeuvrability due to its shorter shape. By the 1960s, the V-bottom surfboard was invented by Australian surfboard designer Bob McTavish, which was the first instrumental step towards the modern shortboard. Shortboards are characterised by a sharp pointed nose between two and five fins and are usually around six to seven feet in length. What they lack in buoyancy, they make up for in manoeuvrability and speed, and these are the ones you'll always see in surf competitions. Australia's champions. Unsurprisingly, with all these pristine beaches with great surf breaks and loads of kids growing up with salt in their sun-bleached hair, Australia has produced numerous world champion surfers, both male and female. These champions include surfers such as Wayne Bartholomew, Tom Carroll, Barton Lynch, Damien Hardman, Mark Ocalupo, Mick Fanning, Joel Parkinson, Stephanie Gilmore, Lane Beachley, Wendy Botha, and more. The World Surf League, the governing body for professional surfers, incorporates three major championship titles held in Australia every year. The Quicksilver Pro on the Gold Coast, the Rip Curl Pro in Victoria at Bells Beach, and the Drug Aware Margaret River Pro. Mick Fanning is arguably Australia's most famous and most successful surfers and has won four titles at Bells Beach and been ranked number one in the world multiple times. More than just fun. 
Since surfing developed from being a relaxed way of life to a mainstream sport, its progression has led to research on its health benefits, which are numerous. It has numerous physical benefits, including cardiovascular fitness, muscular strength and balance development, which come from the constant paddling through the water, which develops arm and back strength while simultaneously increasing the heart rate and whilst carving up waves on top of your board. Surfing also gives its participants a chance to think and relax in an environment that decreases stress and relaxes the muscles. Today, there are approximately 2.5 million recreational surfers in Australia, 420 annual surf participants, 107 surf schools, and 2,292 accredited surfing coaches. So, over 1 in 10 Australians surf as a recreational activity. So, there you go, guys. Hopefully, that's helped you understand a little bit more about surfing history, where it started, when it started, and how it got to Australia, as well as how it developed into an amazing subculture and an amazing sport in Australia. If you guys get the chance to come to Australia and learn how to surf, I thoroughly recommend that you give it a go. Anyway, guys, thanks so much for joining me, and I'll see you in the next episode. Peace. Peace.